Hello again to another Invested Investor podcast. Today we have Yelena Alexic, an entrepreneur from Cambridge, whose business I invested in probably a couple of years ago. Yelena, tell us a bit about your background. Hi, everyone, and uh, thank you, Peter, for having me on the podcast. So my background is in genetics. I originally came to Cambridge to do a PhD in genetics. And during my academic research, I worked on a rare disease called Dubuit syndrome, which uh, affects children and gives them developmental delay. And uh, during that time, I got very interested in the problem of early diagnostics in rare diseases, because I found that as a scientist, I could send off cells for DNA sequencing and get the results back very fast and analyze that data. But from engaging with charities and patient groups, I found out that a lot of them uh, encountered a very different journey. So in the UK, it takes an average of six years and visits to eight doctors to diagnose a rare disease. So there are a lot of people kind of being bounced through the system uh, with very severe diseases and not getting answers. So what this really got me interested in is why the technology for diagnosing some of these disorders is really already there, but there seems to be a huge gap in terms of access to this technology when it comes to patients within the healthcare system. So I teamed up with my co-founder, Dr. Robert Steinich, and uh, what we tried to do was to kind of look at the shape of that market and the processes within healthcare and really find out why this gap existed and what kind of intervention we'd be able to build up in order to speed up access to these diagnostic tests. And what we found was that within the healthcare system, doctors were spending a long time trying to find the right tests in a system that was quite technologically outdated. So for example, a doctor who wanted to diagnose a patient would phone up five or six different labs, check whether they still did the same test, how much it cost, and collectively it was costing the healthcare system a lot of money to waste all of this doctor time. The time, um, yes. Yeah. And also the doctors weren't necessarily finding the best tests on the market. They were finding the tests from the labs that they were familiar with. So it was quite a fragmented market when we first and started And at this, this point, you were still both employed, were you? We were both postdocs at the university. And with a steady income, of course. Yes, that's right. And um, the nice thing was, uh, so both of us were bioinformaticians by background, and our employers were actually very flexible. So we both went through this process of being full-time postdocs who were researching a startup on the side to being half-time postdocs who were doing a bit more startup work to um, eventually both kind of quitting our jobs and deciding to focus on the startup full-time. But that's still a big plunge. And other entrepreneurs need to understand taking that plunge between a steady income and a lot of uncertainty. How did you go through that process in your mind? I think it was something that, at least for me, I, I always wanted to do. It's the first company where I quit my job and I really tried to build it up full-time it's not the first company I ever founded, so it's actually the third one, but the other ones I did kind of casually on top of my academic career. So I think on some level, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. But also going through that process is scary, and you're kind of stepping away from what you've always been told will be success in your profession. So we all get told to publish and go on with academic success, and actually stepping away from that is, is difficult. I think for both of us, I mean, we went through um, a lot of the early work took about a year and a half where we still had kind of full-time employment and an income. And it was really the market research data we'd collected during that time was quite convincing. And we started working with uh, the Addenbrooke's Hospital here in Cambridge uh, to build up the first prototype, which kind of uh, gave us the... Even before you raised funding, was that? Yeah, that's right. So we we closed the contract with them before I raised our first funding round. And that's what kind of gave us the confidence to say, okay, we, we think we have something real and we really want to kind of work on this. And, and you also on went on the Cambridge mm-hmm. Accelerate program. So can you, what's the timing between full-time role, mm-hmm. accelerator and funding? Sure. Received? So we were actually part of two different incubators at different times. So we joined uh, Social Incubator East because we originally started off with um, quite a kind of social enterprise motivation. We wanted to cut down this diagnostic time for patients. 
And then about six months after joining that, we also joined uh, Hanadi's Accelerator, the Judge Business School. So the timeline was, we spent about a year thinking about it and doing the initial research. Then we joined the Social Enterprise Incubator. Then about six months later, we joined the Judge Business School Incubator as well. And the Social Incubator, um, the program lasted a year. So um, after that... Left your own devices, yeah, maybe? Yeah. But uh, during that year, you get given a lot of support and we... We also had office space through that for a year, so that was that was good. And then the accelerator, the Judge Business School, it's a it's a longer program. So the first six months is quite kind of intensive training, but then after that, you still have access to the mentors and you have support for quite a long period of time. So um, we were part of the accelerator for a couple of years. And then, when in that two years did you go out for funding? It was we closed the funding around a year after we quit our full time jobs. And you quit your full-time jobs whilst you were already on the accelerator, did you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it's, it took maybe about a year and a half from so you, joining the first... And how did program. you live and pay the bills during um, that year and a half? It was tricky. <laughs> I ate a lot of lentils. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but other than that, uh, no, we had... Uh, Savings, maybe. Yeah, we put in a little bit of money ourselves at the beginning, but it was a really small amount because we were coming out of academia. We got a little bit of grant funding. So the accelerator actually had a kind of pot of money for... Oh, yes, for, five or 10K, was it? That's right, yeah. yeah. So I think they gave us 15K. And what we also ended up doing, uh, just to kind of bridge the period between kind of going out for funding and closing the funding around, was uh, we got a business loan from... Um, an organization called Foundation East. Oh, that's uh, Belinda Bell. Is. Yeah, that's right. So so because we had this link with the Social Enterprise Incubator, Foundation East were happy to give us a loan because they they like to fund businesses that have some sort of social mission. Mm. Um, but it's quite a range between, I mean, some businesses are charities, but some businesses are clearly commercial, but have a set of KPIs that are linked with social impact as well, which was the case for us. So we got, uh, it was 50k from them, and that helped us kind of bridge, bridge this the, time till you raised around. So you, exactly. you went out to pitch to a number of organisations. Yeah, that's right. Including the Cambridge Angels and who else? Cambridge Angels, uh, Cambridge Capital Group. I also had a lot of informal conversations with various kind of Cambridge and London angels that people introduced me to. So it was quite a number of different people and some venture capitalists, although generally we were kind of too rich with them. Yes, yeah, exactly. okay. yeah. So you raised 150k, was that right? 350. Oh, 350k, yeah. Okay. And Jonathan Milner led that round. That's right. Yeah. yeah, fine. And did you collect angels from a number of different groups then? It wasn't that many groups. So it was mainly Jonathan Milner and Cambridge Angels. So uh, we were backed by uh, Darren Disley, yourselves, and the Martlet Group, and uh, Simon Thorpe. That money came in, and then you could launch yourself properly. So yeah, right. find an office, etc. Can you talk about hiring at that point? Yeah, so at that point, our team expanded. Um, so originally, we were a team of two, myself and my co-founder. Quite early on, we had um, some internship schemes, which meant that we got some people in temporarily. Um, and that was supported by this Santander internship scheme, who gave us half the money, and then we paid the other half. And that way, we got some early market research done more comprehensively than we might have done otherwise. And we also had a communications officer, uh, Tamsin, uh, join quite early on. So she stayed with us, and then later on joined the um, social incubator as uh, one of their staff as well. And uh, once we closed the funding round, at that point, we could expand the team more. And so we split the funding 50-50 in terms of where we applied it. So 50% of it went towards uh, hiring developers and really kind of working on the product. And then 50% went towards uh, hiring commercial staff. So we had a marketing and communications person and we had a business development officer join as well. And all these staff were in the same office, were they? You didn't have some developers in another country? Uh, we did. Um, the, the commercial staff were all in the same office. So there was a team of um, four of us all working out of idea space for most of this. Um, we found that it was quite difficult hiring developers in Cambridge and that they were generally very expensive to hire. So 
we outsourced a lot of the development work. So we had uh, one member of staff based in Serbia and one member of staff based in Morocco. And uh, Robert, our CTO, spent a lot of time on Skype managing our remote development and, team. And you, you're from Serbia and your co-founders from where? From Serbia as well. Oh, as well. Yeah. Okay. So we have, uh, I mean, uh, the nice thing about that is, I mean, because we had the local connections, we could find some really good people through the network that we had already. And then the developer in Morocco, we did a more traditional recruitment process of posting adverts everywhere and kind of trying to find somebody who can do some more kind of security-focused work. Because we were operating within healthcare, um, data security was one of our key priorities. So we really wanted somebody... Yeah, we'll talk about the platform and the, and the, the offering in a minute. The company's called Gene Advisor. Mm-hmm. When was that name chosen and why did you choose it? It was chosen quite early on. I think it took us a couple of months to come up with it. So in the very early stages... There was a group of us who were friends and we were entering business competitions and it, we were just doing it for fun, but we, it kind of leads you to play around with ideas. And we entered a few, we won one of these few um, hundred pounds for hundred words competitions and went out for dinner. <laughs> That's Cambridge, Cambridge <laughs> That's University Entrepreneurs, That's right, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but just through this process of entering business competitions and kind of tweaking the idea at every stage, um, it just led more and more to something that really looked like a business. And then it came to a point where, you know, we, we sat down and we had the conversation of, you know, like, shall we go and do this? Who wants to stay? And at that point, everybody else left, <laughs> which happens when uh, you can like switch from. Startup weekends are commonly yeah, like that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. When, you, when you switch from, you know, this is an idea to, okay, let, let's make this happen. But actually, at that point, I was talking to Robert and we were, uh, we're both bioinformaticians. So we were teaching the same programming course together and we kind of went for lunch and I said, I'm starting a company. And Robert said, hmm, I really want to start a company. So, so at that point, the two of us kind of partnered up and became business partners. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about the product. And, and I remember in the early days that the relationship with Adam Brooks was really important to me as an investor. Yes. So that relationship was really important to us as well. And in a way, that's how the whole company started. So Robert and I teamed up. Um, and as I said, so we wanted to look at the, these barriers that patients faced when getting these diagnostic tests and why they're in place. And we had a number of ideas around that in terms of what we could offer as a company. Being bioinformaticians, I mean, one of our first ideas was to make some data analytics software to deal with this type of data, or even potentially set up a lab that could do more diagnostics. But through going out and talking to different bits of the market, we actually found that there are plenty of labs already out there, uh, the tests are already out there, and there are a number of large companies already offering this kind of analysis software. But what really seemed to be missing was this kind of link between the different providers and the doctors. And that really came out in a conversation we had with uh, Dr. Steve Abbs, who's the director of the genetics lab at Addenbrooks. So at a very early stage, she said, you know, I don't need software. I have a bioinformatician. I don't need anybody to do the test. We're already doing the tests. But what I really need is some way of uh, reaching customers and uh, really kind of getting our offering out there. So in a way, the business model and the whole idea was it came up in collaboration with him. So we've, we've worked very closely with them from the start. And Addenbrooks is our local hospital, our local teaching hospital here in Cambridge. Uh, yeah, that's right. And uh, they're very good at adopting innovation quite early in terms of they've digitized a lot of their healthcare records and they're kind of a good starting point for a lot of projects, I think, to initially launch kind of their offerings within a particular kind of corner of the NHS before going more broadly. So the customer journey is that somebody in a department in a hospital somewhere else in the world can find your site somehow and go on it and then order a genetic analysis and then they would send the sample to Addenbrooke's and the data would go back. Is that yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, yeah. okay. And so clearly there's a huge privacy security issue here. Can you just talk through how you got through that? Yes. Yeah, so there were a few different obstacles to overcome in terms of that. Um, so we wanted to set up the system in stages so that there was something usable at the customer end at every stage, but we wanted to build up on that and provide a more and more comprehensive service over time. So initially how we got through the security aspects is that the service we offered was very much a kind of financial transactional one rather than a data transfer service. So the process was that they would 
order and pay for the test online, but then the actual sample would go to Adam Brooks and the data would be sent from Adam Brooks to the customer directly on paper. So we never handled that data initially. And then part of the funding round that we raised was used to get this um, ISO 27001 accreditation for the company. And we put in all, a lot of changes uh, in terms of our kind of company processes and data security processes to put that in place. And it's quite comprehensive. And once we had that, then we went through the NHS information governance for them to approve the processes that we had in the company uh, and make sure that everything was um, kind of up to their standards as well. And we actually got through all of those. So we got to the point where we were able to handle the patient data within the system. And this is using the, I think it's the N3, isn't it? Secure um, network or not? So we weren't on the N3 network. So the, I think the way it works, and Robert did most of this work, so he would be able to kind of advise people in detail. But there are processes in terms of uh, company practices where basically you go through um, all the potential data risks and what you need to demonstrate is that you've looked at them and you've taken actions to alleviate those risks. And that looks at where the data stored physically. So we had to move offices, for example, was one of the things. It also looks at kind of where the data bounces through. So we had to switch who our hosting was from. So the NHS wanted us to have servers based on UK soil. So that was one of the things that we had to change. And then just making sure also that, for example, the staff are trained. So, you know, everybody had to have password locked things. People's computers had to kind of lock down after they step away from them for a couple of minutes, that sort of thing. So just kind of making sure that the various different processes are in place. And it's a process where there isn't really a specific set of conditions you have to meet. It's more about looking at the whole system and whether you've sufficiently de-risked every step of it. Mm. So you gradually developed a level of product market fit, though that was mainly in the UK, wasn't it? Yeah, so a lot of our early partner labs are in the UK. We had a couple of international labs join early as well. And in terms of the customers, it was mainly UK, EU, Australia, some customers from Canada, um, so kind of English-speaking Commonwealth countries generally. Yes. So you were having transactions on the platform, not a great deal, but they were bringing money because you were taking a margin or a commission yeah. on that, weren't you? Okay. So as we know, as we will find out later, this company is in a different form now. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the process from when it was all looking very exciting and positive to the point where you thought, Maybe we aren't the right people to do this. Yeah, so a number of different things happened that kind of led us to that decision. I mean, the main thing that really convinced us we needed to kind of change something really major was I mentioned that our early market projections were based on sales data that was shared with us by Adam Brooks and other partners. This data looked really good. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was the basis So I was kind of going ahead and doing this. And we had the same data shared a couple of years later, having built up this platform. And there was a very clear trend in that data. And a lot of their sales from overseas had just dropped. And what had happened during the kind of two or three years we spent building this up was that DNA sequencing, which was getting cheaper and cheaper, had gotten so cheap that most hospitals had set up their own sequencing centers, at which point this need to outsource to other hospitals overseas was largely gone. I think there were still reasons for outsourcing that were good reasons. So we still believe that there are centers of expertise that are better at diagnosing certain conditions than other centers and that these tests aren't equivalent. But that's a very difficult thing to sell to people if they already have a sequencing center in their own hospital that they're quite happy using. There were also some regulatory changes. So there are some countries where they passed laws saying that the tests had to be done in that country unless there was a very strong reason not to. So the market sort of shifted a bit and turned towards this um, kind of very international outsourcing model that we'd originally relied on. But there are two elements, clearly. There's the mm-hmm. testing itself, using an Illumina machine or one of yeah. the competitors, and then there's the analysis. And surely the analysis, there's concentrations of skills in mm-hmm. certain areas for that. I completely agree, and that was exactly our thinking. Uh, so we actually did 
So we knew that the sales numbers weren't looking that good. So we did a lot of research into a number of potential pivots. So one of the potential pivots was looking at being a broker for analysis platforms. Um, so putting people in touch with experts um, or software providers who could analyze this kind of data. So something we changed over time in terms of how we did things was I kind of worry that I bias some of our early market research, um, not in terms of the numbers, because those were based on sales, but in terms of when you're doing market research interviews, you get this kind of feeling of how much of a market pool there is for something. And I think I was just really excited about it. And I went out and I told people, I've got this great platform. Are you interested? And I mean, people generally say, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds great. But I realized later on that actually it was almost like I was half doing market research and half doing a sales conversation at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it was important to do it in a more kind of impartial way. So a lot of the kind of later methods we use. So Jonathan Milner suggested that we use some of the methodology uh, from the Lean Startup book because it's very structured, it's very scientific, and you try and... That's Eric Ries's book, is it? That's yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you try and set up experiments where you send out something to customers and you try and make it as impartial as possible. So you remove kind of me talking to them from the equation and see whether they perform a particular action. So with the data interpretation providers... We found some people who were happy to be the providers of that. And then we tried to find some customers and we sent out some kind of early links. We tried to do kind of early promotions of that service and there just wasn't very much interest. And I think the problem was that even though scientifically, I believe there is a need for that and that there are experts, it's not a problem that people perceive that they have. And it's actually quite a difficult tell kind of telling somebody, well, you're not doing that test well enough. I think you should really buy from us because we'll, we'll do it better if, if that's something that people aren't necessarily aware of to begin with. So we did do an experiment based around that, but we just didn't get particularly promising results. There seemed to be kind of very little perceived need of this. And you were running out of cash. Running out of cash, yeah. <laughs> so did you have to shrink the team? Or so? What I'd like to understand is the point where you made a decision that this wouldn't work and you didn't go out for extra funding and you decided to shut it down. Yeah, so first we had about six months uh, where the whole team was working on a number of different pivot ideas. <laughs> So we went through um, anything we could possibly think of that makes use of the resources we had. So we went through, you know, can can we specialize? So can we create a cancer-specific marketplace? Can we look at only prenatal diagnostics? We set up a lot of different experiments and we did a lot of market research in kind of different adjacent areas. And we didn't shrink the team. We actually kept the whole team for that, but we had everybody kind of really focusing on trying to find a new business model that might work. And we just didn't find anything that was connected to what we'd previously done. I mean, we ended up with, you know, if we wanted to make money, we could become a web development agency or a drug development company. And at that point, you're you're so far away from the initial kind of business model that what you find is you've got liabilities, but you don't really have opportunities kind of stemming from the liabilities that you've built up having built your previous thing. So uh, what we did at that point was we had a difficult conversation with our investors. So we actually had a strategy session with Jonathan Milner and we invited all of our investors to that session and it was a couple of hours of going through all the data we'd collected on the different possible pivots, uh, where the company was and really just sitting down with everybody and seeing whether anybody had any last minute rescue ideas and whether there was anything we could do with that. And uh, I I think the decision was unanimous that, I mean, when people saw the data that we had, you know, they, they also kind of reached the same conclusion as us, which is that it just didn't seem to be commercially viable. I think it would have been possible for us at that point to still raise another funding round because I think we did still have support, but it felt irresponsible to me to do that if I didn't think there was actually something commercially viable there. If you'd lost faith in the longer term future, it would be completely irresponsible, correct? Exactly. (laughs) So So the board had considered, before we moved on to this elegant failure, (laughs) elegant closure and and its rebirth effectively, 
The board consisted of you two and Jonathan, was that's that right? right? Yeah. Okay. And was Darren an advisor and, and Simon would be advisor and I talked that's to you right. sometimes? So Darren was an advisor quite regularly. So we'd meet up for a coffee once a month and kind of talk about how the company was doing. And uh, Simon was also, we, we kind of met up for lunch occasionally and so we would talk about how the sales were going. And so, yeah, I also got some sales advice from the mentor that you pointed me towards. So our investors were actually, I mean, very involved generally and we got a lot of advice and uh, yeah, but it was, I think it just wasn't that particular business model in that particular market just wasn't commercially viable. And that was the decision I came to. And at that point, closing the company was a difficult decision, but it, it seemed like the right decision at the time. So how long was it between that strategy meeting and effectively the company closure? At that point, it was very quick. But what had happened leading up to that is about the six months before that, everybody was aware there was a problem. We were doing a lot of market research to try and fix the problem. And we were kind of reporting those results back. So it wasn't a sudden surprise the to anybody. The staff were starting to leave then, were they? Or? They were starting to look at other opportunities. They, they weren't. We actually had a team that was very passionate about the mission behind the company. Um, so they really, they really stayed with us until the last minute and everybody was working very hard until the last minute to try and make it happen. But unfortunately, I mean, we didn't come up with anything that we thought could be long-term commercially viable from what we had built up. And you were running out of cash still. So there's yeah, a part we where you have to cash, stop yeah. paying the salaries. Yeah, I mean, there was a part where we had to make that decision. So, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about it. A, the rebirth, or not the rebirth, but where, where it is, and B, how you transitioned to where it is now, the platform. What uh, happened after this was that we, we made the decision that the company was no longer commercially viable and that we had to close down, at which point we had to make our staff redundant, inform everybody, um, all, all of that kind of closing down process. And... What I really wanted was to make sure that we consider all stakeholders in this and try and kind of do the best by everybody because investors put money into the company. The team did a lot of work to kind of make this happen. And we did build up a product that people were using and it wasn't commercially viable, but it was fulfilling a need. So it was very important to me to try and find the best home for it that I can if possible. And what we ended up doing was actually giving away the product to the NHS. So they they now own it and they run it. And I've been told they're actually planning on expanding genetic testing portal across England, which we're really happy about because that was one of the things we really wanted to accomplish. So it's an interesting case where, um, I mean, definitely commercially the company was a failure. I think we can, we can all agree on that. But we did start off with this uh, social mission. And actually in terms of that social mission, we, we did accomplish some of the changes we set out to accomplish. And that's something I'm really happy about. And it brings up an example of, you know, you, you can be a failure in one sense, but uh, at, at the same time, it's possible to be successful in another sense. And fulfill some of the goals that the company was set up with. We had another lady called Katie Tunser, who you may or may not know, described the ending of her business, which then was taken over by a charity in similar space, but not the same as an elegant failure. And I think I would also award you if that's (laughs) the right term. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. So you've now got a situation where the company's closed. It was a solvent failure. It's Mm -hmm. important to say that. So apart from us poor shareholders, which we're used (laughs) to, unfortunately, nobody else lost any money. Obviously, people lost their jobs. I suspect they've all got jobs again with the skill set they had. So let's talk about the social work, the charitable work. We'll talk about trend and we'll talk about what you're doing now. Mm -hmm, Sure. Trend in Africa is a charity that I've been a director of for the last six years. And uh, the mission of the charity is to support uh, scientific capacity development in the developing world. So the charity was founded by a PhD student in Cambridge uh, called Lucia Prieto, and uh, she was doing a PhD in neuroscience. And she went to a neuroscience course where she met uh, Sadiq Youssef, who was a professor in Uganda. And they kind of got chatting, and um, Lucia was working on fruit flies at the time, which is a great model for neuroscience. (laughs) And Sadiq was working on rats. They kind of had this conversation where Lucia went, 
We're can rats. I mean, they're, they're big. They take a long time to breed. They're expensive. Surely, why don't you use fruit flies that are like a lot cheaper, a lot faster? You get a new generation every four weeks. And so they kind of went like, that's a really good idea. And like, that would actually be better for us. But I don't know how to run a fruit fly lab. And the problem was that, you know, in, in the institute that he was working in, nobody had this expertise. And so the first course that the charity ever ran was this um, fruit fly genetics course, where it was basically like a three-week crash course in how to set up a Drosophila lab around in the countryside of Uganda. <laughs> and it kind of grew from there because we found that there was, there was a really need for this. Because across Africa, um, so a lot of the kind of primary and secondary education efforts are starting to work. People are coming out of these and they want more education. And there's a network of universities who are training a lot of people, but often the training that the lecturers have had is quite outdated. So maybe they, they've gone to uni in the 70s or the 80s, and it's not really been kind of updated since. And also in terms of the research, they are doing research, but they might be coming out with research that's already been done, or they're not using the most modern methods they could be using. So the charity is, it's entirely volunteer run. It's a network of scientists from the kind of top universities across the world. We've got about 60 volunteers. And the type of work we do is running training courses in kind of really cutting edge biomedical sciences. We ship over equipment. So, so far we've shipped over about 12 tons of equipment and helped set up new research institutes. Uh, we have a network of partner universities across Africa, and uh, we also send over volunteers for short-term and long-term placements. Um, we the idea that the volunteer will bring their skills to the relevant departments, and then there's a kind of natural skills exchange. In which countries is this? Are they? We have partner universities in about 20 different countries, and most of our courses have been run in East Africa, so Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, uh, but we recently also ran some courses in uh, Nigeria and Ghana as well. And for the courses that we run, uh, we offer student travel scholarships, uh, so we actually get students from all across Africa. So by this point, we've had students from about 22 different countries. And the nice thing is that it also creates a kind of new community of scientists, because something that the scientists there find is that because they're in resource-limited environments, often they don't have travel grants and they don't have a way of meeting other scientists working in the same area. But this way, a lot of our students go on to collaborate and run their own uh, initiatives together. We also have a large outreach branch that's run entirely by African students. So they're excited about science. They want to spread it in their own communities. And that's been working really well because they, they're very familiar with the needs of their communities. So they go in and they run kind of large community events where they basically gather the whole school as well as the surrounding community. and. Um, do some outreach, teach them about neuroscience and really encourage not just the students, but also their parents and the surrounding community to consider science a viable career. And who funds this charity? It's been a mixture of funding. So at the moment, it's, um, as I said, it's entirely volunteer run and uh, we all spend... So you have scholarships that must and travel and... Yeah, so we, we all spend a lot of our time applying for grants and looking for funding every year. Okay, from um, all that, so they're not a core funder. No, so something we're really looking to establish mm. is some core funding uh, to hire at least kind of one, at yes, least part-time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. one admin person would be great because at the moment it's... I mean, what we've found as an organisation is that it's kind of organically scaled up to a point and at this point we're really struggling because... The people who can kind of manage volunteers are limited and there's a limit to what we can do without securing core funding. So actually a lot of our focus is on yeah, establishing some sort of infrastructure for the charity so that it can grow longer term and uh, keep delivering what it's delivered. And it's capital T, capital R, small e, capital N, capital D. What does that stand for? Training and research for natural sciences for development in Africa. Right. The Africa is not mentioned in the trend, yeah. but... So the full name is Trend in Africa. Oh, fine. So my fault. I've yeah, misread that. So, Yelena, what have you learned on this two, three, four-year journey that will be of use in your next startup? So many different things. I mean, I, I came out of academia and uh, went into running a business. So anyway, the entire experience was one huge learning curve. 
I mean, the main takeaways for me, um, so firstly, I already touched on how to do market research and this idea that I might have biased my own market research early on. So definitely using a more structured approach and trying to test very early on, not even necessarily whether there's a need for something, because there often is, but whether there is a commercial interest in it. So when testing business models now compared to how I would do it three years ago, I would definitely focus on trying to get some early customers and really getting that market validation. Because you can somehow get the technology to work, you can get all the processes in place, but it's just, you know, can you get the customers? And really focusing on that more than anything else. And also being quite honest about what the risks are, and then trying to focus on the biggest risk first, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of making sure that you can kind of really build up something from there. That's assuming you can work out what the biggest risk is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, depending on the market, but they're often commercial. I mean, yeah. so, you know, c- can you get the customers? Are the customers willing to pay enough for this? And if that's the case, then often everything else can kind of work around that, I think. In terms of business growth and building teams, it's a tricky balance when you raise funding and kind of how you, how you deal with that. Because on the one hand, I mean, we, ha- we had this kind of chicken and egg problem almost that we were operating within healthcare that's quite conservative and we had to offer them something and we needed money in order to build up a product to do that. So there are certainly cases where it is important to raise early funding and it's not really possible to kind of proceed without that. But I've also been looking at kind of how to approach businesses, at least in the early stages, in a kind of more organic growth kind of way. And I think for a lot of software businesses, it's quite frequent that they will find the first customer who will pay for the first bit of development and then uh, the business grows like that. And I think that's quite interesting because it gives you that early market validation as much as anything. And I think from my end, I would be, I really, really want to make sure that, I mean, I'm not kind of outwardly going out for investment again, but just making sure that I have a really solid business model that I know can scale because we also ran into some scaling issues when we went out and tried to spread the system and turned out to be um, a lot more difficult than we... Are you talking about technical scaling or commercial scaling? Um, Commercial scaling. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so I think definitely doing a lot of early testing as much as possible, identifying and de-risking as much as possible, and also just accepting that building something good takes a long time. So kind of doing organic growth at the beginning and just making sure that I have a really solid business model is something that I'm really... So I'm going to ask you a very direct question here. Do you regret taking the funding when you did? No, I mean, it's a tricky question to answer because I think that in order to really test the business model that we had, we had to build up a product. And in order to build up a product, we needed money. So I don't think that that question was really possible to answer in any other way. I wish the answer had been different, for sure. So I I don't regret that. But But on your next startup, it sounds like you'll try and get customer traction, therefore customer income, earlier than you did this time in order to delay the equity investment if you need it, maybe forever, maybe you'll never need equity investment. Yeah, possibly. Or maybe at some point. But I think having that early customer validation means that uh, you can go to investors with a really solid business model that's already been validated. But as you well know, developing a strong piece of technology before it's ready for customers, it's very difficult to get any money from the customers. You imagine drug discovery. Of course. <laughs> customers for drugs before you develop the drug. Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the business and the industry. And uh, I think there are, there are cases where you absolutely have to raise funding and there's nothing you can do about that. Um, and there you, you really rely on kind of projections and the kind of early market numbers and market research that you do. But wherever possible, kind of trying to test some of the key assumptions behind that. So maybe not, you know, some, sometimes you might not get early customers, but it might be possible to do some early experiments with how interested people are in that and whether there's whether the need is really there where you perceive the need to be. Yes, okay. Let's finish this interview with some tips for entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. 
the audience is made up of angels and entrepreneurs. Give the entrepreneurs some tips. So I think firstly, I really encourage anybody interested in entrepreneurship to kind of just jump in and try it and start experimenting. I think it is possible to start these things quite gradually. So I mean, for myself and my co-founder, we had full-time jobs while we were experimenting with this. So it's not a case of all or nothing, you have to do it. You, you can't just kind of get started with it and learn about it. And I learned so much through the process of doing it that I think kind of the best way to learn is to you know, j- jump in and pick up a project and really do your best with it. And in terms of how you build up a company, I think one of the mistakes a lot of people make, I think we did, we hired a team that was pretty much like us. So at one point, our entire team was made up of PhDs. And that was, I mean, that felt great. And it was a really passionate team. I think everybody was really kind of dedicated to the company mission. But on hindsight, I mean, admin support earlier would have been good. You don't necessarily need everything on the team to have a PhD, but you need to kind of just gradually build up the bits of capacity that the company needs when it needs it. I think some more commercial expertise would have been really good as well. So kind of most of us came out of academia and I think having somebody more commercial experience would have been... And in terms of selling, a a PhD will do a great consultative sale, Mm -hmm. but they won't necessarily do a sale that's purely product sale. And so if you want to scale something rapidly, Mm -hmm. you you don't want to have a consultative sale because the cost of acquisition of that customer clearly is more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I I think, yeah, kind of... um, Getting the right expertise in your team and having a team that's quite diverse and not necessarily made up of mostly people who think like you, <laughs> I think is uh, probably good. And yeah, definitely trying to do early testing wherever possible and uh, kind of being honest with yourself about the risks. Something else that's been a learning experience for me is um, I really care about honesty and transparency. And I think throughout this process, we've, been, we've tried to be as honest as possible with all stakeholders. And I think that's been really important because... It didn't go well um, in, in some senses. As you said, it's an elegant failure. So um, it did end up in a, in a place that we're very proud that it ended up, uh, but it didn't go as planned. And I think something that really helped was that this wasn't a surprise to anybody. We communicated a lot with our investors, with our customers, with our employees, um, with everybody involved. And I think that meant that when it came to things not going well, we had a lot of support that we wouldn't have otherwise had if this is something that people were kind of blindsided by. So yeah, I, I would encourage people to be kind of honest and transparent and kind of have as much integrity in this process as possible because I think that's important. Yeah, of course, that's music to my ears because the whole point <laughs> of this project is exactly that. And you were, you've been, you were very open on the whole process. So thank you very much for that. Great, Yelena. This has been really good. I've learned a lot from the journey and I will definitely, provide you fit in with my criteria and you want external funding next time, I will back you. Thank you very much. Thank you very this. much. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. Investor.